0: From Turtle Island to Palestine. Occupation is a crime. Free, free Palestine! You're listening to Radio Free Palestine. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Under the Olive Tree, the Palestine Solidarity Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. My name is Sousan Kadoura and I will be your host for the next hour. Focus uh, on boats and solidarity work with Palestinian. You might know already the Freedom Futilla initiatives. We did cover it many times on our show before. So, on Tuesday here in Montreal, Zohar Regev started a small tour in Canada. She gave a talk at McGill University. Uh, that was on Tuesday, as I mentioned. Wednesday, she was in Kingston in Ontario. And Thursday is in London, Ontario as well, before she, before leaving and going back to Spain. So it's a small tour in Canada in these three different cities. And um, her visit and her tour to Canada in Canada is about the Freedom Flotilla that I mentioned. Now, before we talk about the Freedom Flotilla and explain why we're talking about it today and talk about its history, very interesting history... Who is Zohar? So Zohar is an Israeli citizen. She was born and raised in a kibbutz and uh, today she lives in Spain and she's an activist with uh, Rombo Agaza, which is the Spanish component of this larger Freedom Flotilla movement. So before I play the interview because I was there during the talk on Tuesday, and I did talk to Zuhar, uh, Zuhar, I did an interview with her right after the talk, that was focused on the Freedom Flotilla, its history, and what is planned right now for 2020. And so um I will be playing this very interesting interview, but before that, uh, let me maybe start by playing a small clip from the talk. And uh, this is when she was answering a question at the end. She was asked by someone from the audience, how did she become a Palestine solidarity activist? How did she become, as an Israeli, involved in initiative like the Freedom Flotilla campaign, which really aims at challenging the Israeli occupation and the illegal blockade on Gaza in particular? So I'm going to play this clip so you know a little bit about her background and how she became uh, involved in a Freedom Flotilla. And then we will be back. Stay tuned on Under the Archer.
1: To my personal story. So, I actually grew up knowing these things. I was fortunate enough to have parents who were quite clear on this, especially my father. I mean, he was a soldier in 67 and he came out of the, you know, this uh, war knowing that, you know, these territories that we've just occupied we shouldn't keep them but there weren't many Israelis at that time who thought this way and I was born in 1970 and I I grew up, as I said, on these kibbutz founded by all survivors and it's in the Galilee, it's very close to Nazareth and I remember being five years old and. A family Palestinian family build a house on their own private land, but it was agricultural land they didn't have a building permit, and somebody from my kibbutz was actually instrumental in having their house demolished so I you know my parents and a few other people from the kibbutz went and you know helped them brought them a tent we, we played with their kids and when I came back you know to my peer group they couldn't understand I said why do you help these people? And to me, it was so clear that these were just our neighbors. If we wanted to live in houses, why couldn't they live in houses? Why did their baby have to die because it was cold and they were living in a tin shack? You know, this didn't make any sense to me. So for me, it wasn't an epiphany, but I did, you know, my understanding grew. And it's, it's interesting, you have this plaque there speaking about knowledge and wisdom. And I, I don't pretend to be wise, but I think you you learn things and you see things and your understanding of the situation becomes broader and I decided to leave Israel when I was 34 and I moved to Spain and it was only then that I became an activist in, in this sense I mean I used to go to demonstrations but I was never part of anything I used to go to direct actions of like planting trees or uh, helping to build uh, structures in the unrecognized villages in the Negev the Benin villages and things like this but I was never part of any organization mm-hmm. and I just I just found my you know activist home in this sort of thing this this flotilla effort and one of the special things about it and mm-hmm. I think I would agree is that it's quite unique that campaigns from all over the world we have people in Turkey in Malaysia in New Zealand, Australia, Norway, Sweden, Spain, Italy. It's Canada, the US, you know, all these different places with different cultures. But we managed to pull our resources together and buy boats and sail them and lose them in this great attempt to to try and raise awareness. And it's it's not easy, and people blame us for you know wasting all this money and all this effort. But there is something powerful about people from different backgrounds, different organizational cultures coming together and being able to do something like this. And, you know, I I find this Mm important.
0: So this was Zuhar Negev, Regev. Uh, she's an activist, as I mentioned, with the Freedom Flotilla movement. In this clip, she was uh, talking a little bit about how she became a Palestine solidarity activist throughout the years up until she started being involved in the Freedom Flotilla, and in, th- in Spain in particular. And this clip was part of a talk, as I mentioned, she gave this Tuesday on uh, in McGill University about the history of the Freedom Flotilla. And the talk was organized by S- SPHR McGill. SPHR stands for Students in Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights. So she is visiting a couple of other Canadian cities as well. She was in Kingston, uh, London as well, both in Ontario before going back to Spain. And so the talk again is about the Freedom for Tala campaigns. And so on Tuesday, I was there. And uh, after she gave her talk, I interviewed Zohar about this initiative, that has been going on for over 12 years now. Each year is different with its own challenges and surprises and goals. And uh, we all remember the 2010 in particular um, campaign, the flotilla campaign, which marked many and got a lot of attention. Because if you remember, 10 activists ended up being killed by the Israeli commanders uh, on one of these ships, the Mavi Marmara ships, which was the main ship, I believe, of the flotilla. Uh, of that year in 2010 and so uh, this year 2020 is the 10 year anniversary of this really murder that happened on one of these peaceful flotillas and so with Zuhar we talk about that but also talk about the entire history of this campaign from its beginning around or before a bit before 2008 up until today and uh, up until today in 2020 where the Freedom Flotilla will be launching their boats again, Uh, it's going to be in May So it was very interesting to um, listen to the talk of Zohar also and to interview her after that. Just because we looked back at... We covered the Freedom Flotilla constantly, but it was interesting to sort of go back from the beginning and every year see what was, what happened, what was the goal, what was the challenges. So we went really... We looked back and went year by year to see what really happened, all the ups and downs, the challenges, and really what we was going to happen this year and how, uh, how we can continue to support them and make sure they remain safe. Because as we saw before, uh, it's not a guarantee... And so, yeah, so keep listening to Under the Olive Tree. Here during a talk at McGill University, and I'm here joined by the main speaker. Maybe can you introduce to us to yourself and what brought you to Montreal to talk about the Freedom Front Law, which is the topic of today's interview?
1: Okay, so I'm Zohar and I'm an Israeli citizen and an activist for human rights. I've been involved in the organization of the uh, Freedom Flotilla Coalition as a representative of the Spanish campaign called Rumba Gaza since 2012. And uh, I came here to uh, present what we're going to do this year, but also to tell about the history.
0: These flotillas are focused on Gaza. So before we talk about what is the Freedom Flotilla in particular, I maybe go a little bit about the history. Can you maybe talk a little bit about Gaza we know that Gaza is under a blockade so maybe talk about what does that mean how does that affect Palestinians so can you maybe briefly summarize why Gaza needs our solidarity okay so the first thing to say is that you need the context and the context
1: is uh, Palestine has been suffering from a colonial settler colonialism which is you know the Zionist movement in its search for a safe place for Jews to live, has sort of displaced the native population. And this is important to understand because Gaza itself has become what it is now, uh, an area of 365 square kilometers with 2 billion people because it is home to a lot of refugees from historic Palestine who had to flee their homes in 1948. And Gaza has been under uh, Egyptian control from 48 until 67 and then at the same time as the West Bank it was occupied by Israel and since then it's been under Israeli control which means that Israel is the one controlling the population of Gaza for all means and purposes and as an occupying force it is responsible for the well-being of all the civil population what Israel tries to do by blockading Uh, Gaza is collectively punished the civil population for having elected Hamas in in 2006 and because uh, Hamas' victory in the Palestinian election wasn't recognized, it imposed this blockade that basically means Gaza cannot develop its own economy it cannot export its good people are not free to leave or come in they're not uh, free to visit their families in other parts of palestine they're not free to get work because there's no work inside gaza they're not free to uh, cultivate their fields or go fishing because israel impedes all these things by you know controlling the borders controlling the sea uh, imposing a no-go zone or a fishing zone where it actually shoots people who try to go into these
0: areas. So that would lead us to the Freedom Flotilla, which is a solidarity campaign with Gaza in particular. Um, Can you maybe introduce us in general, for our listeners who are still not very familiar, what is the Freedom Flotilla? What is the main sort of mandate of this initiative, the goal of it?
1: Okay, so before we speak about the Freedom Flotilla coalition, we have to speak about the Free Gaza Movement. These are the boats that uh, sailed in 2008 and actually managed to get into Gaza. Uh, these were international activists who just joined together and sailed from uh, Cyprus and Israel didn't know what to do with them, so they basically let them in. And after israel started stopping those boats because they made more attempts after the first 5 that got in and were uh, basically stopped by force by the israeli navy so in 2010 the freedom flotilla coalition was formed in order to bring more boats bigger boats more activists and uh, the main boat in this flotilla was the mavi marmar and The attack on all those ships was especially uh, lethal. On the Mav Marmara where uh, live ammunition was used and nine activists were killed, 56 were injured, and one of the people injured actually died from uh, his injuries uh, four years later. This caused uh, uh, a year later, there was a lot of interest and a lot of... uh, Willingness from the international community to start another mission, and we called it Stay Stay Human, after an activist, an Italian activist, that came into Gaza with the boats in 2008. And this flotilla was stopped in Greece. The Greek government basically did not let us sail.
0: So you mentioned 2010 or 11, so basically the, the flotilla is a group of ships, right, and that goes to, uh, to try to enter Gaza, and you guys take human, uh, humanitarian aid with you, so, so what is the goal? Before I go a bit in the history, what is the goal of these ships? Uh, who, who goes on them? Um, what do you guys bring with you? What do you wish to achieve even now that it's most likely to be stopped and so on? Can you talk to us about that in particular?
1: Okay, so I think, again, it began as an act of solidarity and it stays an act of solidarity. So our aim, of course, is to get the blockade lifted. But we realize that just as activists, as civil society action towards the civil society in Palestine or in Gaza, we cannot lift the blockade. So we send a message of solidarity to the people of Gaza, so they know that they are not forgotten, that other people around the world care about their fate. And at the same time, because we realize that Israel can only impose this blockade through complicity from the international community, we try to send a message to our own countries, to our own governments, to stop its complicity with Israeli war crimes and violations of human rights.
0: So you mentioned 2010 was a deadly, deadly trip. Ten people died. 2011, more interest continues despite the, this uh, deadly attack. And in your talk, you talked about how the blockade was outsourced. So the Israeli government, quote, outsourced the blockade. Can you explain a bit what do you mean by that?
1: Okay, so 12 boats from different campaigns all over the world gathered in Greece and were about to sail. I was supposed to be one of the passengers on the Spanish boat. The situation we were in is that all the boats were there, ready, and we were just told, you can't go. At first, they were trying to uh, make excuses and uh, you know, inspect the boat, say, you're missing this, you're missing that. But eventually, Greece, probably under pressure from Israel, from the U.S., uh, just dug up a law from the dictatorship in the 1970s and said any boat that tries to leave here and go to Gaza by public declaration will be stopped by the Greek coast guard so just like one of the participants here was saying israel is an expert in you know making other people do its dirty work like you know through the oslo accords the Palestinian Authority actually deals with a lot of the problems of the occupation financed by the European Union or other international donors, the same thing happened basically in Greece, Israel did not even have to deal with us in international water because we never left Greek territorial water, having the, the Greek authorities stop us.
0: Uh, so that leads, it, uh, leads me to 2012. So there was a point you made about 2012. I think that links to sort of the propaganda the Israeli governments try to uh, create around these flotillas, Because in 2012, I understood that they stop you and then the argument they used that there was no humanitarian aid on these uh, ships. And But you showed pictures and you said that, well, it's great that we have this documented, but how many people actually heard our side? So can you talk about maybe... From that example, talk about the type of propaganda and maybe lies that are spread around your trips every year.
1: In, in relation to humanitarian aid, because you asked this and many people ask, we, our boats, especially since you know, our resources are limited, cannot carry as much aid as is needed really in Gaza. But there's a principle here that we say what Gaza is asking of us is not more aid they ask for their freedom so that they would not need aid. So when we do take aid, it's symbolic, and we always say our biggest cargo is actually solidarity. But other you know, propaganda po- points are, for example, what happened on the Mavi Marmara is that Israeli soldiers came down from helicopters, shooting down at the deck, trying to clear it, and... People were hurt even before the first soldier was down. So, of course, the, the reaction from the activists was to try to defend themselves. Yet Israel says all soldiers only shot because they were attacked. So it's, it, you know, it's completely the reverse. And I mentioned one point that I know from people who were on the Mavi Mamra that when they caught two Israeli soldiers, they actually disarmed them and threw the weapons into the sea. Israel will not tell you this. But the fact that the only weapons Israel could show that were on the boats were just knives and sticks is to
0: say, you know, if they had weapons, wouldn't Israel show it? To continue to 2013 and 14, what was interested in these two years is that... Um, the initiative was trying to get boats out of Gaza instead of in Gaza. So can you maybe talk about that? What, why was that decision made? What, um, what were you guys hoping, and with Palestinian, obviously, locals in Gaza, what you guys were hoping to achieve that by reversing it, I guess, and making ships leave Gaza?
1: Okay, so in 2013 and 14, it was a long project because a boat was first bought in Gaza, and it took a lot of fundraising to to be able to get the money to buy it. And then it was being prepared by international activists and workers from Gaza, and the point was to say, you know, people in Gaza need work. They had. flourishing fishing industry but because they're not allowed to fish people forget how to you know prepare the boat how to work on them so it was actually helpful for the people there to get work and of course for the products being made there there are no markets this is the great tragedy of the blockade that They can produce, but if they produce, they have nobody to sell to because the products can leave Gaza, and people inside Gaza are unemployed and can't afford to buy those products. So what we were saying is uh, Gaza needs trade, not aid, and so we got international solidarity groups to buy products from all of Palestine, not just Gaza, and we gathered all these products, and we're going to load them on that uh, Former fishing boat that was being uh, transformed into a, a freight a vessel, and what Israel did was it sabotaged this. I mean, we don't, we cannot prove that it was Israel, but the boat was sabotaged. There was a bomb placed on it. The guy who was the guard on the boat got a phone call saying, you know, get away from the boat because something is going to happen. He moved away and then the boat exploded and started sinking. So we took it out of the port and we uh, tried to uh, fix the damage. And then in the summer of 2014, as the boat was being repaired, the Operation uh, Protective Edge started, and as part of it, there was a direct hit on this boat as it was in the port, and it just burned and it was destroyed. We couldn't sail it, but the products were still there, so the message was delivered. You know, the Palestinian producers got their money, and the products were there, and you know, we we ended up donating the the food items to needy families and kept the other embroidery and uh, crafts uh, in Gaza in order to go on explaining to people these people are perfectly capable of developing their own economy if they are only allowed to do so.
0: So, 2016, you guys did something a bit different as well, and you decided to do a women boat for Gaza. So, can you talk to us what happened with that boat, and also who did you ended up, end up, ended up getting on the boat? I saw during the talk many high-profile uh, women politicians from around the world, and that's, that's another point maybe if you can talk about that, this diversity of solidarity that comes from really the many, many countries around the world. So, can you talk more about that uh, initiative in particular? Thank you. Yeah, in
1: 2016, the idea was to highlight the role of Palestinian women in the struggle of their people. And we did manage to get a lot of interest from different organizations. But in the end, there was only one boat sailing. It was a small sailing boat, but both the crew and the participants were all women. And we had women from many countries. So we had Sweden, we had... uh, member of parliament from New Zealand, we had a member of parliament also from Sweden, we had a captain who was Australian, a a woman from Spain, a medical doctor from Malaysia, an activist, an athlete I think she was from South Africa, Anne Wright from the United States who used to be a colonel in the American army and then worked for the State Department and resigned in 2003 as the United States invaded Iraq and since then has been a peace activist and is also involved in the flotilla organization, so she was actually the boat leader on that boat. Then we had a member of parliament from Algeria and a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, uh, Myron Maguire from Northern Ireland.
0: And this, uh, this uh, boat was stopped as well, right?
1: Yes, it was stopped in international water. Uh, actually, one thing that's interesting, and I didn't mention it in the talk, is that in 2016, because it was so clear, that this boat was no threat. Israel created a special unit in its navy called Snapir, and uh, the uniform for this unit was all white. They were dressed as if they were like a rescue team. They came on the boat offering water and food to the women, trying to say, okay, we're just trying to help you. But of course, they took over the boat by force, and then uh, kidnapped, basically, all those 13 women, took them uh, to an Israeli port and accused them of being in Israel illegally. This absurdity is, again, something that we try to bring to the world. You know, you can't take people in an act of piracy in the middle of the sea and then accuse them when they're in your country.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that, because every time the Israeli government or the Israeli uh, commandos or military stop them, it's interesting also to mention they always stop them in international water, which is an illegal act. Plus, they always, a lot of time you hear the Israeli propaganda saying that we're not in Gaza. Gaza is not occupied. If Gaza is in that humanitarian situation, that's all the fault of Hamas. But then when a boat tried to go to Gaza, they stop them. So the contradiction, how are you not occupying Gaza if you keep stopping any boat going there? So if a boat tried to come to Canada and U.S. stopped every boat coming, we will think that the United States is blockading Canada. <laughs> so just to kind of clarify that point. So 2017, uh, you guys didn't have a freedom for the boat going. So in 2017, what did you guys do instead?
1: Okay, so in 2017, we decided to focus on the situation of fishermen in Gaza. And, uh, of course, the fact that uh, Gaza used to rely heavily on fishing for its economy. Uh, Fishermen from Gaza used to go all the way up north to Haifa and down south to Port Said. And now they're not allowed to go more than six nautical miles. It's an area that basically doesn't have any fish. So from maybe 10,000 fishermen who used to work, they're now reduced to, uh, you know, maybe two or 3,000, and these people cannot support their families with the fishing that they uh, get. And yet, even within this uh, permitted fishing zone, Israeli Navy boats will shoot at the fishermen as they try to just make a living, and they will force them to uh, take off their clothes and swim uh, to the navy boats, they will confiscate the boats, sometimes they injure people, sometimes they kill people. So what we tried to do during that year was to um, connect the Gaza fishermen with other fishing communities around the world. I know that in Canada they were trying to get people in Newfoundland uh, to, to know about this, because we also realized that a lot of the small Fishing communities also suffer from different hardships because of, uh, you know, depleting uh, fish fishing or fisheries, and also because of the big industrial uh, fishing that doesn't allow them to live. And we thought that they will be more receptive of, you know, the situation, be able to appreciate how difficult it is to be a fisherman in Gaza. And we had different events all over the world to you know, to raise awareness, to connect with those uh, fishing communities. We also raised some uh, material aid and got an organization in Gaza that's connected to uh, our campaign in Malaysia to give some some material aid to the fishermen. So there were some nets and some suits. And uh, this is basically what, what we did that year in preparation for the uh, 2018 mission included four boats, two of them sailed along the Atlantic coast of Europe from Scandinavia, stopping in many ports, and two of them went through the canals of Europe trying to reach uh, places where we usually couldn't uh, get to other cities. And I I tried to explain that, you know, with different events, uh, cultural events, uh, street marches, meetings with politicians, for example in the north of Spain, in uh, Asturias, we actually went to the regional parliament as they were voting on a, like a political declaration of support for the flotilla. but more importantly to request of the central
0: government in Spain to put pressure on Israel to lift the blockade. So, an interesting, you mentioned 2018. I thought it was an interesting anecdote when you talk about the funding of these three of these boats. So can you maybe talk again about it? Talk to us about the story behind that.
1: Okay, so in general, when people ask how do we finance these missions, each of our campaigns does fundraising in their own country. But the interesting thing was that the Swedish campaign in 2018 was able to buy three sailing boats because of the compensation it was given by the Israeli government because they could not legally, according to Israeli law, confiscate the Estelle, which was the sailing boat that the Swedish campaign used in 2012. Uh, Israel failed to notify the owners, so the Israeli court decided it needed to return the boat, and because the boat was destroyed, the uh, lawyers in Israel filed, a, you know, a civil suit for compensation, and this money was the money used to buy those uh, three boats.
0: Yeah, it was hundred thousand dollars. This is not a little money. Like you guys managed to buy three boats, so. Um, So that was 2018. So the last, I want to talk about 2019 before we talk about what you guys are planning to do this year. 2019, uh, you showed during the presentation there was events also organized around the world. So can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, we we realized that uh, our campaigns need something to do in order to keep the awareness going. And if we are not able to sail that year, that does not mean that uh, Gaza stops being under blockade. And I showed some uh, pictures from the U.S. campaign, but I think some events were also held in Canada. And these events sometimes try to relate to water, like people will go out in canoes or in boats or on a ferry. But basically, it's uh, to spread information, to explain, and it's educational uh, purposes are the real important one because, as I also mentioned in the end, everything we do is just an excuse to speak about what happens in Gaza. We don't want the attention to be focused on what happens to us, even though it is uh, absurd that Israel will be attacking uh, peace activists only because they want to show solidarity with the people of Gaza, it is still the population in Palestine in general, in Gaza in particular, that suffers the consequences of Israeli policy.
0: So that leads us to 2020. You mentioned something uh, that the UN, I believe, said uh, back in 2011 that by 2020 it's going to be unlivable in Gaza. So maybe can you talk to us about what is the situation in Gaza? Can we say the situation got better or are we really in the scenario uh, portrayed by the UN that this is really... uh, a horrendous situation in gaza are we are we in a situation where it's really unlivable and from that take us to your initiative this year because you explained that in may 2020 you guys are launching uh, a new uh, flotilla campaign so can you talk to us more about that this year 2020
1: okay so yeah the the focus this year in the 2020 mission is the children of gaza and we talk about you know the fact that uh, 50% of the population of Gaza is under 18, and 70% is under 30. So we have a lot of young people there with great potential. But the situation, as, as you mentioned, you know, the report that the UN uh, said Gaza will be unlivable in 2020 was uh, released in. Uh, 2012 and of course they only said if the blockade is not lifted or if the situation doesn't change but the situation actually got much worse because in 2012 there was a massive attack where hundreds of people were killed in 2014 there was a massive attack where uh, 2200 people died like more than 2000 many of them uh, civilians Uh, loads of children, loads of women, there were thousands or tens of thousands of people who were injured, but uh, the infrastructure that was destroyed, like the number of houses, the number of families who uh, became homeless, the number of schools destroyed, that now they have to uh, have double shifts for the children to to study. the factories that were destroyed and left people, uh, you know, jobless, uh, these are all things that go accumulating. And then in 2017, I think, you know, there was terrible cuts of electricity. And, you know, some people in Gaza would only get four hours of electricity a day. And you have to realize that no electricity for a lot of them means no water because they need to use pumps to... uh, pump the water up to the roof in order to have water pressure and the worst thing about it is that they don't even know when the electricity will come on so they can't plan in advance and say okay so i will you know cook then or i will put the washing machine on or i will put the pump to uh, raise the water at such a time it could come on in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day when you're out trying to work or trying to make a living all these arbitrary decisions by the Israelis who are, again, I have to insist on this, they are the occupying force and they are responsible for the well-being of these people. So this collective punishment is what's so unacceptable. One other uh, major event uh, this year for us in 2020 is the 10th anniversary of the attack on the first voltage where people were killed, you know, our... Uh, Comrade, as you could say, you know, our partners in these uh, efforts who were killed, and in order to honour their uh, martyrdom, we we also sail, and we plan to reach Gaza on the 31st of May, which is the actual day of the 10-year anniversary, and. Again, we we plan to stop in a a few ports in the Mediterranean and we want to raise awareness. And we want to encourage people because uh, our boats are small, we don't have a lot of space on them for many people, but anybody can be what we call a passenger on land and help spread the information. And we are only an excuse to speak about Gaza when bombs are not falling, because people here also we're saying, okay, so when there, there is a massacre, people sort of get outraged and then they go out in the street and protest. But this slow death of the people of Gaza is a continuous thing and it, we, we somehow need to uh, invite the media to take notice of what's happening there. And this is basically what, what we try to
0: do by our non-violent direct action so i guess finally you already touched uh, on it a little bit what can people here in canada our listeners in canada can do to support you there is a canadian initiative the canadian boat for gaza i believe so the canadian version of that uh, of that initiative so can you talk about how people in general but also how people in canada particular can support you What, what can we do
1: Okay, so of course our efforts, because it's a direct action, need financial resources. So we want to encourage people to donate. And we definitely say that, you know, if you can help directly people uh, on the ground with humanitarian aid, it's great. But what we try to do is political work that tries to go to the uh, root of the problem. So we don't ask for money because people in Gaza are poor. We ask for money because it's needed in order to make a powerful political statement to challenge the blockade. We want people to, you know, put pressure on their governments, and this can be done by following us, and yes, you mentioned the Canadian boat to Gaza, which is the campaign member of the Freedom Flotilla coalition here. We want to encourage people to get in contact with them, follow them on social media, uh, ask them for information, for, you know, resources that can be shared with other people. And, you know, if you can organize local events, if while we sail you organize solidarity events and, you know, keep your eyes on these boats as they sail, this is what uh, sort of like scares the Israeli propaganda because the more eyes look at us, the more uh, secure our voyage and the bigger are the chances that the blockade will actually be lifted.
0: Well, thank you very much for the interview and very interesting talk to go through the history of the boat, it, it generated a lot of discussion. We heard it almost entire interview in the background, people were still discussing Palestine and you guys got donation as well. So uh, I wish you all the good luck and obviously we're gonna keep an eye on you because as you said during the talk, uh, keeping an eye on you is what keeps you safe and scares the occupation. So thank you again. Thank you very much so welcome back you are still listening to under the olive tree we were listening to an interview i did with Zohar Regev, who is an activist from the Freedom Flotilla Movement. So um, I will be, if you didn't catch the interview from the beginning, I will be putting that interview online and the link will be on our Facebook page and new Twitter account if you are interested. So I want to end the show by mentioning uh, reading a statement by the BNC. You know, I was away for a couple of weeks. Last uh, the last two weeks, the shows we played were pre-prepared and pre-recorded. But now that I'm back and I see what is happening with the Wet'suwet'en Nation, it's um, it's uh, it's frustrating. It's infuriating that. Um, that uh, that we still act this way we still treat indigenous people in canada this way it's not a surprise that our canadian government support colonization and occupation in palestine as we always pointed out uh, that includes our liberal uh, support to supposedly progressive government uh, the trudeau government it's not a surprise that they support that in palestine because this is how we continue treating indigenous nations uh, here and this is centuries after centuries of thefts and crimes, domination, the destruction of political and social structure of indigenous nation, and uh, still not enough. The colonial mentality continues shamelessly. So when as a nation, our language and reflex continues to be of domination, of subjugation, police invasion, repression, all driven by greed, our entitlement to land, to continue stealing—we, I don't think we can call ourselves civilized. So this is how, uh, this is not how civilized people should act. At least according to my values, my principles. I don't know what principles people choose to have, but the Canadian government keeps saying, and we covered that on the show many times. They keep saying that they, uh, they share the same values and principle of the Israeli government. And yes, indeed, (laughs) that is definitely true. For once, I agree. Um, They do definitely share the same values as the Israeli government, even decades and centuries after all the crimes that were committed. They still have a colonial mentality. This is not a surprise. Obviously, this is one example of continuous uh, struggle of the indigenous people and what they continue facing. It is still frustrating to keep seeing that. Uh, I don't know how many centuries will take for settlers and Europeans on this land to say enough is enough. And I would also ask that question about Palestinian in Israel as well. And so uh, from that, I'm gonna read a statement as I mentioned from the BNC. The BNC, as you know, is the national committee of the BDS uh, campaign. The BDS campaign is uh, the main solidarity campaign, the main Palestine solidarity campaign. It was launched by civil society, Palestinian civil society, um, and it's a boycott campaign. So BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanction. And it's really succeeded in the last 10 years and even more to um, give a tool for activists, Palestine solidarity activists, uh, give them a tool to empower them and to uh, help them keep bringing the question of Palestine to mainstream media. And uh, they helped really change the discussion about that. And the BDS really managed to scare uh, the occupation, uh, the the, the occupation government uh, in Palestine, Israel. Uh, They, as you know, we covered this uh, many times throughout the years, they have so many ways to try to fight it legally and uh, and in so many other ways to try to fight it and stifle it. And uh, with the support of many governments around the world, including ours, like I said, it's not surprising. And so the BNC, the National Committee of the BDS, uh, they released a statement in support of the Watsuwatan Nation. So I'm going to read it. I guess I have time to, have to read the whole thing. So they say the Trans-Canada Coastal Gas Link Pipeline aims to steal Wet'suwet'en land, use resource extraction to solidify control over indigenous territories, destroy the environment, and violate indigenous law. From the occupied Palestinian territory, we stand in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en nation and land defenders at the Unistoten camp and Ten, who continue to resist Canada's colonial incursions of their unceded territories. The Palestinian BDS National Committee, or BNC, the largest coalition in Palestinian civil society that leads the global BDS movement, sends a message of support to your struggle. We call on the Palestine Solidarity Movement in Turtle Island and elsewhere to stand with the Wet'suwet'en nation. As Palestinians, we have first-hand experience with the colonial power. Israel's regime of occupation, colonization, and apartheid that systematically works to dispossess, divide, and strip us of our lands and resources. We know too well from our own experience that the Trans-Canada Coastal Gas Link Pipeline aims to steal Wet'suwet'en land, use resource extraction to solidify control over indigenous territories, destroy the environment, and violate indigenous laws. We also know that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police attacks sanctioned by the Trudeau government against the hereditary Wet'suwet'en leadership, matriarchs and land defenders are used to violate indigenous sovereignty. The RCMP is employing tactics and equipment similar to Israel's government, including caterpillar bulldozers, to seize indigenous lands. We are deeply grateful for Wet'suwet'en people for their indomitable spirit and their tireless defense of the land and water resources. We stand firmly with you in your struggle for your land and ancestral rights. Palestinians owe the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island a great debt of teaching us how to resist settler colonialism generation after generation through your powerful resistance, grace, and indomitable spirit. The BNC is committed to building stronger ties of solidarity between our peoples and movements, and we will work with our partners in Turtle Island to make this a reality. From Palestine to Wet'suwet'en, we stand united with you in the struggle against settler colonialism, racism, corporate criminality, and your inalienable rights for justice and self-determination. We would be honored to welcome you in Palestine when the time is right. I think I want to end the show by playing a new music piece that was just released uh, less than a in, in few hours I think oh yesterday it was released yesterday by a tribe called Red and it is uh, Land Back featuring Boogie the Beat and Shipewa Travelers and um, they released it with the statement they say the hallucination would like to dedicate this song in support of the Wet'suwet'en nation and to the indigenous led movements across Turtle Island and beyond. We oppose the invasion of sovereign indigenous land by the RCMP and the coastal gas link pipeline. We stand with the Wet'suwet'en people and their hereditary chiefs. We stand with all the people working to support their fight. So this is a statement by the tribe called Red. And it came with a new um, song or or music piece, I guess. They released yesterday, so I will. um, I want to play that next. Keep listening to Under the Tree. So this was land back by the tribe called Red, and that's it for us for today. You are listening to Under the Olive Tree, the Palestine Solidarity Radio Show on CKUT ninety point three FM in Montreal, and on CFRC one zero one point nine FM in Kingston, Ontario. As I mentioned, if you wanna um, listen to the interview with it today, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it available online, and also put the link on our Facebook page, and so you can find it there in a couple of days. I just look for under all, the all tree security. So my name is Sausan Kadura. I was your host for the hour. Make sure to join me again next week, same time and same place and until then, I wish you a free, free Palestine. <laughs>